We're going to continue our study uh, called Winning the War in Your Mind. Did everyone get a handout? Everyone get a handout? Cool, cool. Did y'all get a handout? Did Rick, you get them a handout on their way in? And uh, we're in lesson number six of Winning the War in Your Mind. I want to give you a brief promo. I think we have eight lessons total, maybe nine in this series. Uh, We'll take a gap week where uh, probably someone else will teach. And then we're going to start a series in a couple weeks that I've called Storyline. And I'm really excited about this. I think it'll be a really big help to you in just understanding how your Bible is put together. And what I want us to see in that that Sunday School series, Storyline, is we're going to see how God's plan is traced throughout the scriptures and see how God, um, with the themes of sacrifice and kingship and other things like that, how God's plan is developed throughout the scriptures. It's going to be a really, uh, I think, enlightening study together as we begin that. And I think it'll help you really understand and appreciate the Old Testament. I don't know about you, but sometimes uh, I want to read all of the scripture, but I find it really difficult sometimes in the Old Testament. And I think what this will do is give you some tools to understand and help you when you encounter Old Testament passages in your personal Bible reading. And so that'll be our next series together, okay? But this morning, we're going to continue our series in winning the war in your mind. And I want to talk to you about this idea of our panic and God's presence. Now let's look at Philippians 4. I don't know if I told you to turn there. I want you to turn to Philippians chapter number four. We're going to read a couple verses together to begin this morning. Philippians 4, and we're going to start in verses 4 and work our way through verse 7. And then if you could... Hold your place in 1 Kings 19. So Philippians 4, 1 Kings 19. Paul, talking about the subject of peace in Philippians 4, says this in verse number 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Let your moderation be known unto all men, for the Lord is at hand. Be careful or anxious for nothing. Stop. That's a command, right? Isn't that interesting? God says, don't be anxious about anything. Oh, we struggle with that, don't we? But, verse number six, in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. How many of you know what this picture on the screen is? What is it? Someone... Someone tell me what that is. The Staples Easy Button. Judson, what happens in the commercials when you push the easy button? Do you remember? It says that was easy. Anyone else know, like in the commercial, the way the plot worked? What would happen when you push the easy button? Say that again. Stuff appeared, yeah. Your problems really would be resolved. And 
But this is crazy. This slogan from Staples was introduced in 2003. We all know what it is, right? They had these commercials that included the easy button. And when someone pushed the easy button, their needs, their problems around the office would be magically taken care of. Hey, listen, I wish I had an easy button for life, don't you? That would be real nice. And because this campaign was so successful, Staples didn't even, I think, anticipate this. People started asking if they could buy an easy button. Now, people knew that they wouldn't actually fix their problems if they pressed the easy button. But imagine having a commercial so successful, people want to buy the thing featured in your commercial just as much as maybe you're trying to market your office products and stuff. And so they started marketing and selling the easy button. It's a cool idea, isn't it? Push a button. If you have a need, if there's a problem, if you're stressed out, push a button and it all magically goes away. Well, unfortunately, this is not a real thing, right? We don't have an easy button, but I think all of us have a button that's much more real than the easy button, and it's our panic button, don't we? All of us have a panic button. Now, the notes you you were given this morning work a little differently than normal, and that's by design. I wanted to give you a more full worksheet. If you've been with us through this study you know that I've emphasized to you that the the real proof is in the pudding here. The real help is in your time being invested on your own time to fill out these questions and to think about your thinking. And what I've told you up front is thinking about thinking takes a lot of thinking. It's hard. It's not easy. That's why probably some of us have not done these most weeks. But this morning, I gave you a fuller worksheet that will make more sense as we work our way through the lesson. And we might take some time to fill some of it out, but I want to encourage you to fill it out on your own. You can write your own notes in the margins. So there's not going to be a whole lot on the screens like normal. I want you to take your own notes. We're just going to follow the flow of what this worksheet talks about a little bit throughout the lesson. Now, all of us have a panic button. Now, what is panic? All right, here's a definition. Panic is a sudden, uncontrollable fear reaction that may involve terror, that's pretty extreme, confusion, and probably for more often of us, irrational behavior caused by a perceived threat. We push our panic button whenever we encounter a perceived threat, don't we? And those perceived threats can be very different for all of us, can't they? But all of us have a panic button in our minds. We run into a certain threat that seems to scare us more than maybe might scare our brother or sister in Christ, and we hit that panic button. I'll tell you um, a a fun one for me, a silly one, I guess. Um, I was talking to somebody this week, uh, actually Brother Disney. He hit a deer in Branson. He was in Branson taking care of some paperwork. Um, And it reminded me, my freshman year in college, on our way home, I had all my stuff, everything I owned as a freshman in college, which can fit into a Honda Civic. That's how much stuff I had. And I was on my way home from Oklahoma City to Arizona, and we hit a deer, completely told my car in the middle of nowhere, right? 10 o'clock at night, very dark. And so now when I see deer or see this deer signs, I'm going to be honest with you, there's a panic button going off in my mind, because I know the inconvenience, the danger, all of that 
that reminds me of this past threat I encountered. Okay, so step number one in your handout is this. I want you, and we're gonna take a minute here to do this, to write down situations that make you panic. We're gonna do that right here and right now. And you may have different triggers. I'm not just talking about deer. I'm talking about things that are really more of a daily thing. I'm not talking about your fear of spiders, okay? Um, my wife has come a long way in this area, but she got a really severe spider bite early on in our marriage and struggled with spiders for a while. She's listening on live stream, really frustrated that I'm telling you this right now. But she has really come a long way and now is a spider slayer when I'm not home. I'm not talking about those types of panics and fears, Okay. Um, I'm not even talking like storm alerts. You ever gotten those the last couple of weeks, right? Gotten a lot more than we're used to. It, it could be something like the scale saying you gained a couple pounds. It could be a call from your doctor's office saying they want to talk to you. For, for a lot of people, I think their panic button gets hit when change happens. It, it could be very innocent change, right? But we don't like change in routine at work, right? We don't like change in our schedule, change in authorities. Um, I'll give you one. I always, I have a panic button that gets hit, and this is more, just tied to the fear of man, I think. Um, when someone says they need to talk to me about something, you ever had that, Robert, as a pastor? Yeah. Can I just give you, if you wanna just be a blessing to your pastor, don't do any of that vague junk, all right? Just, just say what you need to talk about, all right? But even when I worked for my pastor in Liberal, uh, it, it almost never included reprimand. But if he said he needed to talk to me about something, woo, my imagination went wild because I have a, a fear of failure, a fear of letting people down. Maybe for you, you hit your panic button when you get into a confrontational conversation. You don't like that. And it may not be like voices raised, but you don't like when it, it's not peaceful and easygoing in a conversation. And so you hit that panic button in your mind. It could be that you hit your panic button when you feel disrespected. And so it triggers something in you that, um, and we all deal with panic differently. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, some people, their panic button gets hit when they feel left out, Right? Feel like that. A lot of times that's tied to fear of man as well. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to take your hand out. I'm gonna sit awkwardly here for a moment of silence. While you feel that, I want you to think, what are some things that trigger you, cause panic um, in you? I uh, think of my, my daughter, Nora. You can start writing down. Um, we, we're working on this with her twice now since I've been the pastor here. She's run away from the church building because as soon as she doesn't see us, she thinks we've left her, which has never happened in her, in her entire little life. But Nora has this weird panic about being left and forgotten, right? So I want you to write down some situations that make you panic. Write those down right now on your handout. Confrontation, disrespect, financial restraints and constraints, feeling limited in your ability to accomplish tasks, panic. Write down some things that cause you to panic.
Now, you don't have to, but would anyone be willing to share that just so we can kind of see? I, I try to apply, but sometimes it's really good, brothers and sisters, to, to say, hey, I struggle with this too. And someone across the auditorium might be too proud to say theirs, but they're like, oh, wow, I'm not the only person who deals with that. Who'd be willing to share one or two? Um, totally up to you, but who'd be willing to share something they might have written down? Um, things that can cause panic. Try to give you some examples. What would you guys say is, is, causes your panic button to get pushed? Faith? Being alone in public. Yeah, same. I've been to two weddings in the last three weeks, and I, I hate social settings like that where you're just standing by yourself. I, and yours is probably even broader than that, but um, I totally understand that. What else? Panic button. Thank you, Faith. Having to rely on others. Man, <laughs> your panic button's been held down the last couple of weeks, hasn't it, Kathy? Yeah, I, I, I can understand that for sure. We all appreciate and value our independence. What else? What caused you to push your panic button? Yep. Amen to that. Amen to that. Let's do one more. One more. Someone else who hasn't spoken up. Children? Be more specific. Because their cute faces probably didn't cause panic, right? It could, it could be a lot of different things. <laughs> Zero older eyes at cute faces. Sure. Yeah. Disrespect. I wrote that on mine. Yeah. Not just children, but other, other people can, can cause me. So, so step number two in your handout, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think about why this causes you to panic. Think deeply about it, right? It's good for us to say, okay, I know what causes me to panic, but it's better for us to say, why does this cause me to panic? Because generally, our panic is not in proportion to the size of the problem. Are you with me on that? Generally, not always, um, of course, the Bible says be anxious for nothing. So how much anxiety does God intend for us to have in response to our life? Zero to 10. How much, does God, how much anxiety does God want us to have in response to our life? Zero, right? So we could say generally, the anxiety or the panic we face or we experience is not in God's economy really fair to the size of the problem because God intends for none of it, right? That's a challenging thing. And that's why we, we need to learn God's truth to help that. But what I want you to do is write down, okay, why does this cause me to panic, okay? Let me give you some examples. So think about the disrespect one, because Joy, I, I deal with that too, even with my kids and, um, and, and other things, is that sometimes I found, this may not be you, that disrespect causes me to panic because I fear losing control, right? Or uh, that could be the same with our, our, our brothers and sisters in here who nod their heads with the financial thing that Robert brought up, right? We, we love, and I think this probably fits a lot of these panic buttons, we love control. We like the illusion that we are the creators of our own destiny. And so when things happen, health, right, relying on others that, that show us that that's not actually ever been the reality, but God has in his grace allowed us to think that for a while, then it shows us that we've actually put too much stock in our own control of our lives, right? We, we've found a lot of pride and footing in there. That might be why something causes you to panic. It, it could be that you 
fear um, letting other people down, right? I told you what of mine. I, I, I hate it when people say, I want to talk to you about something. I don't want to let people down because the reality is, is that a, you may, like me, sometimes too much esteem the opinion of others, right? And, and so that can cause you to panic when somebody is let down by your actions and frustrated by you, right? Uh, there's a lot of things, but what I want you to do, even now you could do this while I'm talking, is, is I want you to journal a little bit. Think about why these things cause you to panic. Maybe you might write this on the margin next to that. Write this question. What are the deeper spiritual issues at play? Isn't that a question we're asking a lot in this series? What are the deeper spiritual issues at play? Because here's what we learn when we read the Bible, okay? The problem isn't often the real problem. Think about this. God, when he gave us the scriptures, he didn't give us a topical manual on how to fix this problem, this problem, this problem, did he? No, he gave us this, this book of largely, I was talking to Rick about this this morning, largely filled with stories. Some of you, you're looking for Rick. He's right behind you. He's in the media booth there, right? He gave us a book filled with stories in and often a book that talks about things that were like, why is God talking about this? When I came to church and I want the pastor, I want God to address this. Here's why. Because the problem often isn't the problem. There's deeper problems at play behind a lot of our problems, right? So what I want you to, to write down in your handout as you journal this, what are the deeper spiritual issues at play? Now, I want to I disclaimer this. We talk about the panic button. Not all panic, but not all panic is bad, okay? Panic is a natural emotion created by God that he gave us to respond to danger, okay? For instance, being calm, cool, and collected when a bear is attacking your family, probably not a good idea, right? Not a wise response. So, so panic is good, um, and it comes from this little tiny thing in your brain called the amygdala. And what happens is this thing flashes and, and, and spikes your emotions and your survival instincts, right? That's why um, if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like this, but when you've been scared or fearful, I'm not the quickest runner on planet earth, but if I feel like I'm in danger, I'm a fast man. You may not believe it, but I can run like the wind, and you probably can too, right? You, you may not have ever jogged a second in your life the last 30 years, but if your amygdala is lighting up and you're in danger, some of y'all, you could run for a good while, right? You ever watch the show Cops? Those, those guys can run for a while, right? You watch these cops, you're like, these guys need to hit the gym, but they can run like crazy in uh, panic-inducing situations because there's this biological response that's like supercharging their muscles and their brain. And so your amygdala sends adrenaline through your body, preparing you for action. You ever been in a tough conversation and you kind of get a little jittery? Does that happen to anyone else? That happens to me. That's really weird. I feel like self-conscious right now. But I, I get this adrenaline because it's like, oh, I don't like, I, I don't like this situation, right? But here's the problem, okay? And this might help you understand why our response isn't in proportion to the actual threats. Your amygdala, your body's panic response, lights up the same way to perceived threats as it does to real threats. 
right? Your body panics. Your body doesn't have a function that's really well calibrated to discern whether or not something is actually putting your life in danger. So you will have a similar response to a bill as you do to a bear. To a problem in your home or in your marriage as you do to a rattlesnake. Now, Christians, let's be honest with ourselves. This, this causes us to do really dumb things when we're panicked, doesn't it? It causes us to say stupid things in arguments to our spouses. It causes us to respond in ways that we look back and we're like, that was so dumb and unwise. Why did I do that? You did that. This is not an excuse, but it's an explanation. You did that because you've created in your mind a view of a threat that causes your body to respond the same way it does to an actual real threat. Now, how does that happen? How do we get to a place where our body's responding to these perceived threats the same way it does to real threats? You might write this down. When you constantly fixate on potential threats, you will constantly live in panic. Why do we slip into panic mode so easily? Because as we talked about, this is the main principle of this whole series, that your life will move in the direction of your strongest thoughts. Remember that? And so when we are always calibrating threats and always fixating on threats, our body is going to be trained to constantly live in panic. So what's the solution to our panic? The solution to our panic is recognizing God's presence. Let's turn back to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19. How do we deal with our panic? We recognize God's presence. Let me give you a little bit of context for 1 Kings 19 while you're turning there. You're probably familiar with a guy named Elijah in the Bible. Elijah is a pretty impressive figure in the Old Testament. When you're reading the story of scripture, you recognize that because Elijah's doing miracles that really in the Old Testament canon hadn't really been reported since Moses. So that gives you an idea of the significance of this man, the way God was using him as the servant of the Lord. And really Elijah was in a lot of ways pointing forward to John the Baptist and even Jesus in his ministry. And he had quite an interesting ministry. He was a prophet who confronted an evil king. I don't know if you remember the name of that king that Elijah was kind of toe-to-toe with in his day. His name was King Ahab. And he's confronting Ahab about his sin, and he's prophesying, uh, uh, Elijah is, he's prophesying about an impending drought. And so Ahab gets infuriated and frustrated and ticked off, and he threatens to kill Elijah. Okay, that's some scary stuff. Um, Rightfully, if someone wants to kill you, you should probably hit the panic button a little bit, right? So here's Elijah, and he's living kind of on the run. And in the midst of this saga, we are familiar with 1 Kings 18, which is the famous story of Elijah confronting the false prophets of Baal, right? Remember that story? They, They kind of set up this contest. They have two altars, and he, he lets them go first. He says, you guys can 
try and call down fire from heaven from your God. And they're dancing and they're cutting themselves and they're worshiping and what happens? Nothing, right? And then Elijah has his turn. Elijah takes water and dumps it all over this altar. I mean, it's, there's no way this thing would catch on fire. And, and what happens? Well, he prays this very short prayer. I believe it's 40 words in our English Bibles. And he prays it and the, the altar is consumed with fire. Hey, is that a spiritual high point or a spiritual low point if you're Elijah that day? Spiritual high point, okay? Well, believe it or not, chapter 19 is immediately after this episode. Now, don't you notice the very big change in Elijah's demeanor, okay? Let's look at chapter 19, verse one. It says, and Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and with all how he had slain all the prophets of the sword. So Ahab, bad guy, right? Jezebel, even worse than Ahab. Uh, you read a little bit between the lines, you recognize Jezebel is actually the one who ruled the roost, okay? Now look at verse two. Then Jezebel sent a messenger unto Elijah saying, so let the gods do to me and more also, if I make not thy life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. What is she saying in verse number two? She says, if I don't kill Elijah by tomorrow, you might as well just kill me. That's how determined I am to kill this guy. So what does Elijah do? Panic button. He saw that, he arose, verse number three, and went for his life and came to Beersheba, which belonged to Judah, and he left his servant there. So here's Elijah, even after his great victory, his life is in danger, he couldn't believe it. Here's how I would put it. Elijah had had enough. You know what that's like? You've had enough. You're done. You're, you're up to here. And what we begin to sense in the passage is that Elijah's perception of panic or perception of threats spirals out of control. His perspective gets weirder and weirder in the passage. He, he's more and more disconnected reality and more and more fixated on the threats. And he starts panicking over this situation in a way that didn't even represent reality, though he had a, a bad situation on his hands. And so he's worried at this moment. What is Elijah worried about as we read chapter 19? What is he worried will happen to him? He's going to get killed, right? Now look at verse number four. Elijah's worried that he'll lose his life. And this is his very logical response. Let's look at verse four. He himself went a day's journey in the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And what does it say? He requested what? That he would die. Well, that's not the most logical response to a threat of death, right? He says, God, I want you to take away my life. So Elijah's scared he's gonna die. And he responds by wanting to die, right? This doesn't, make sense, right? So step three on your handout that I want you to fill out uh, either today or later is I want you to write down what is something that makes you feel like you've had enough? What brings you to your Elijah moment where the only thing you see is the threats, the problems? You're pushing the panic button again and again and again. And all the story is really ironic because the name Elijah means Yahweh is my God. But when you read chapter 19, Elijah's thoughts are, 
God is absent. God is not involved. And so what does God do in 19? God in his kindness gives Elijah a reminder of his presence. Look at verse 11 of chapter 19. This is God's commands to Elijah. And he said, go forth and stand upon the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind rent the mountains. Okay, it split them in half. That's quite a scene, doesn't it? Continue to read. And break in pieces the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in an earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. When we read fire, what does that remind us of in Elijah's life? It reminds us of what that came down upon the altar. Fire, right? God says, I'm not even in that. Look at verse 12. And after the fire, a still small voice. Now that's interesting to me, that that God reveals himself to Elijah in this way. He, he, He intentionally tells him to go to Mount Horeb, if you read the whole account. And Mount Horeb is the place where God revealed himself to who else in the Old Testament? Think of the book of Exodus. Horeb, you might know it better by the name Sinai. So Moses, right? And how did God reveal himself to Moses at the very beginning of Moses' story? Something happened to a bush. A burning bush, right? It was fire. And then you trace the the story of Exodus later, and then there's this Mount Sinai experience. And if you read that, there's this very dramatic scene on the Mount, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, where God's glory covers the mountain, and it's such a scene, it's not, I don't remember it being described as specifically as this scene, but it's such a scene that the people of God at the foot of the mountain are so afraid, they're like, you know, I don't know if I want to worship this God. I would much rather make myself a nice shiny golden calf, right? Big, dramatic scene. And God is coming to Elijah and he's saying, Elijah, I'm not in the big drama. I'm not in the wind and the fire and the earthquake, Yes, I was for Moses, but that's not the only way I'm with you. You don't need to rely on big dramatic displays of my power to know that I'm with you. I'm with you, not in the fire, but in the still, small voice. It's like a whisper, right? God is whispering. Now, if you want to hear someone's whisper, Do you need to be close or far? Do you need to be close or far? (laughs) Close, right? You need to be close. So what is God saying here? Elijah, if you can hear my whisper, it's because I'm close to you. I'm not far away. You may think I'm far away because Jezebel is trying to kill you, right? Where's God in that? Some of you are like, where's God in this situation? But God says, I'm close enough 
that you can hear my whisper, you can remember my presence. And what I wanna challenge us to do in our moments of panic is to lean into God's whisper, into his presence. Now, this this statement of God to Elijah for the Christian, the New Testament Christian, has been radically transformed and and given so much more detail because uh, we have the presence of God in a way that Elijah didn't even have. We have the voice and the whisper of the Spirit that lives within us and teaches us all things. We have the revelation of Jesus Christ who walked among men. And we can look at that and see the presence of God. And that's why Jesus says in John 16, 7, that it's going to be better when he leaves because I'm not just going to be beside you. I'm going to give my spirit and put it within you. My presence will be even closer than it was before. So here's the question you have to ask yourself. You might write this next to question number four. Or it's actually your question, number four. What can you do to lean into God's presence? Christians, answer that question for me. What are some things we can do as a Christian to actually understand and sense God's presence in those moments where we don't feel like he's there? How do we we experience that in this way like Elijah did? How do we lean into God's presence? Praying, yeah, good. What else? Scripture, okay. We hear the voice of God through the scriptures. But I want you to think more than that. Okay, those are the the, the two obvious ones, right? How else can we lean into God's presence? Remember what he's done? I, wrote, I tried to write down some other ones that, that I, I don't normally think of when I'm asked questions like this. Assembling with God's people. You know, what's interesting about Elijah's situation is that, you remember the account, right? He's, he's depressed because he thinks he's the only one, right? I'm the only one out here. And really, if you're reading the story, you might be tempted to sympathize with Elijah, but then God says, no, you're not the only one, Elijah. What does he say? I've got like 4,000 other people. You ain't alone. And I think that that what God is saying there in, in that passage and what he's communicating to us is that when we disconnect ourselves from fellowship with God's people, it has the negative effect of us forgetting God's presence. Okay? Yes, the Holy Spirit is with you, but there is something unique and beneficial about gathering with God's people. There's something about that. Are we in agreement or disagreement? I'll, I'll, I'll expand that point if you want me to, if you're not sure. But I'm saying that there's something special because it's one thing for you to have the presence of God within you through the Holy Spirit. But when you're gathered in a room with two or three, what does Jesus say? I am in the midst so there's a, there's a different sense of God's presence in our corporate gatherings. That's why they're so important. That's why we ought not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together because there is something that benefits the Christian by assembling with other believers, especially when it's done 
properly. Another one that you may not have thought of, it took me a while to think of this. One way we can lean into God's presence is through proper rest and nourishment. Do you remember what God does for Elijah at the end of this whole saga before he really even speaks to him? Look at this. So verse number four, right? He's depressed. He wants God to kill him. Look at verse number five. And he lay and slept under a juniper tree. So there's a physical need met by rest. Then this angel comes to him in verse number six and tells him to do what? Eat. Now, if you all need a good justification for a good nutritious filling lunch, here it is, right? The angel says, go eat. And so he looks, verse number six, hey, look, there's a cake, right? And then verse number seven, the angel comes again. That's interesting. He tells him to eat twice. And he fills his soul. And what's interesting to me about verse number eight, he also drank, right? He also filled himself with water or something. And it says that he, he went in the strength of that meat 40 days and 40 nights. Again, another kind of callback to Moses in his time on Sinai and even pointing forward to Jesus in his fast in the wilderness. And so here's what I want you to understand, church. We lean into God's presence through physical rest and nourishment. Sometimes, oh man, you gotta get this. It's so basic, but it's so helpful. Sometimes we panic because our physical needs aren't cared for. We're not resting enough. We're not eating properly, right? And so generally, I would just tell you as a a fellow brother in Christ, don't respond to life when you're malnourished in your food or your rest. Take care of your physical needs and give those panics time to melt away when you take care of your body. And rest is a holy thing in the scriptures. We're gonna see that in Genesis chapter number two. It's far more profound than just taking a nap. There's something about rest that brings us close to God and is part of our worship of God even. Here's the the fifth step. I want you to allow someone to walk through this with you. Oh, listen. If you're pushing the panic button over and over and over again, Walk through that with somebody. Why? Okay, here's our temptation. We can either invite everybody into our panic. I'm gonna just tell everybody everything and tell them all of my problems. And the good thing about that is it it at least recognizes that we need people. That's true, right? The bad thing about that is that when we overshare and we're, we're trying to just offload our panic onto people, it recognizes it's it's betraying that we actually see people as the solution more than God. Because generally, if, if we're in that situation, we're looking for people for comfort and really not looking to God for comfort. But the opposite can be true too. We can undershare. We can hold our panic in. We can hide it from our spouse. We can hide it from our Christian brothers and sisters. And here's why that's bad. Because sometimes you need somebody who doesn't have the same lens as you to help you see God's goodness, to help you see that there's light at the end of the tunnel, you need somebody, you need a Christian brother, you need a Christian sister to walk through those things with you, okay? Here's step six, and I want you to do this later on this week. I want you to meditate on Psalm 145. 
It is a psalm that is a reminder of God's presence to us. Here's what Psalm 145 verses 17 through 19 says. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. The Lord is nigh unto all them that call upon him. He's close. To all that call upon him in truth, he will fulfill the desire of them that fear him. He also will hear their cry and will save them. Read that chapter, meditate on it, and see God's presence promised to you there in the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence that gives us comfort in life. We pray, God, that we would meditate on these things and we would see you in the details of our life. We would see your goodness present with us. Thank you for Elijah's story that's recorded so transparently for us to see a reflection of our own problems and our own panic. I pray, God, you'd help us to be more settled and resting in you. In Jesus' name.